So essentially what I'm giving you today is a two-episode episode. It's a little bit bizarre. Uh, Jim actually joined our Liberty Pub, a, a live conversation that we have with, with members of the Free the People community. And he gave us a snapshot of what was going on, both with Flying Dog and the beer industry after COVID, after the lockdowns, after uh, sales and drinking in pubs was, was no longer legal. So I'm going to start with that, but then we're going to go back to those beautiful days when freedom and beer flowed freely. Was that stupid? So, you know, as you, everyone knows, um, Kibby is a big beer drinker. I am too. The shutdown has just drastically impacted breweries and microbreweries across the country. How has this impacted you guys at, at Flying Dog and how have you um, changed your business model to get through this crazy time? Sure. Hey, thanks. Uh, hi. Um, uh, I, I do have two lives. One is free speech. The other is beer. Thank you, Sam, for framing up the challenges to free speech so well. My beer world's doing a little bit better. So um, first of all, it is a myth that alcohol consumption goes up during tough times. I've been through six recessions, alcohol consumption doesn't go up, but it doesn't go down. It just kind of moves around. Um, my senior management team has worked with me for 15 years. So we have been preparing for this um, beginning in mid-Feb. So we're in pretty good shape. But I wanna point out that out of the 8,000 breweries in America, they're affected very differently. So the top 50 breweries are in a very different position from this long tail of uh, breweries and microbreweries that are out there, some of which depend entirely on their on-site sales. That's, that's not flying dog. So we were the first to close our pub to the uh, public. Uh, that was within 36 hours of the first case being reported in Maryland. We really locked it down to protect our production employees. And we had ramped up production at that time to 24-7 to keep building the inventories, to keep building the inventories, anticipating hoarding. So the meme that's been going around the beer world is, I'm buying two weeks worth of beer for the second time this week. You know, it was just flying off the shelves and we kept sending more trucks out there. Um, for us, the bar, restaurant, stadium, concert venue, beer is about 25% of our business. That disappeared on March 16th, went away completely. But the sales at the beer stores and in supermarkets more than offset that. So we kept resupplying. Uh, what are some of the trends? Um, first is that people want larger packs of beer. They want to go into the store, grab as much stuff as you can, like, you know, the 60 rolls of toilet paper. So 12 packs, 24 packs, we're even looking at doing a 30 pack. Uh, we're also seeing uh, a trend that had been developing and that is consumers moving toward trusted brands. They, they out of the 8,000 breweries, they were starting to narrow it down to one to two brands. It was kind of a go-to thing after all this craziness in the industry. So we're definitely seeing that if you're in the top 50, it's I can trust that beer, grab as much as you can, pay and, and move on. We're seeing our high alcohol beers, uh, we can barely keep up. So Double Dog at 12% alcohol, we're shipping out truckload after truckload. It takes twice as long to produce. Um, 
Triple Dog we have coming out in a few months at 18% alcohol, uh, already huge pre-orders for it. Uh, we do have some supply chain issues. Uh, this week's challenge is CO2, carbon dioxide. It's used in the beer making process. Um, now that 75% of the ethanol production facilities have either shut down or dramatically reduced production, uh, that creates a shortage in CO2. So again, we're continuing to stockpile that. CO2 is a byproduct, it's basically a waste product, uh, but it's an important supply of it. Uh, you're seeing a lot of, this is kind of interesting that restaurants, if you've ever been in the restaurant business, you know it's very hard to do to-go business if that's not what you're designed to do. So we saw a lot of the higher end restaurants doing to-go and our assumption was that it would be just to use up their food inventory. Well, it's actually turning out to be an important part of their business, much lower cost because they're not staffing the whole restaurant. And um, when it comes to alcohol and Liberty, uh, we have been fortunate. We have more liberty and more freedom than ever from these antiquated regulations. So um, you, it was uh, in, in many states that we do business in it, illegal to deliver beer, illegal to sell beer with to-go orders. Uh, there were a lot of restrictions on who could sell beer and what kind of package. Those have all been relaxed. And I, I'm hoping that this is one area where consumers will be so happy with the changes, they simply won't let the regulators go back to the way it was. Uh, so restaurants can now sell drinks to go, beer to go, along with to go food. Uh, it's not a small part of the big part of the business right now. Only about 10% of to go orders are people ordering a drink with that. But that's 10% of consumers that should have the choice to do what they want to do. The, um, the other side of it is the, uh, there are, uh, um, both restaurants and small breweries, these industries are devastated. Out of the 30 million or so small businesses in America, basically all businesses are small businesses, 99.9%. About, uh, about a million are restaurants and they are, uh, my guess is several hundred thousand won't reopen or you know they'll go out of business and change hands. The, Restriction that we're probably in place is you can only have half the occupancy, so that's going to cut their business in half. That's that's a that's a tough way to go. The there'll probably be uh, a thousand breweries going out of business. So out of the eight thousand breweries, uh, a, a a long tail of those, one or two thousand of those, depend heavily on beer that they sell at the brewery or through their pubs. Those have been shut down for six weeks. Uh, there'll be restrictions on them going months into the future. Not many businesses can survive without revenue for two weeks, three weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks, that sort of thing. So um, really good news on the regulatory side, uh, really a tough deal for restaurants and bars and some of the smaller breweries, that's awful. Uh, but that's kind of the short summary of the state of the beer world. Hey, um, Jim, I wonder, um... I, th I think a lot of our fans know about about Flying Dogs' uh, ongoing fight to defend the First Amendment and free speech. I wonder if you had any thoughts about uh, Bob Lawson talk, uh, teed this up, and so did Sam talking about uh, suppression of free speech in this country, in Hong Kong, in, all over the world. Uh, people are are now deciding that certain things can't be said. I think it was in North Carolina that the governor deemed uh, peaceful protests in front of the state capital, capital as a non-essential activity. What's your take on free speech 
during a crisis? Well, uh, it's been mentioned a few times and they're, they're great comments that liberty generally doesn't fare very well during times of crises. Uh, tends to take a couple of step, step back or steps backward. Uh, I think that is true for free speech. The, um, uh, it, was, it was Churchill, I believe, who's credited with saying, never miss the opportunity, never let a good crisis go to waste. This, this is a power grab by government officials and regulators, progressive socialists to get their agenda in place. And I'm extremely concerned. I think freedom of speech is uh, one of the many areas of civil liberties that are under threat. So I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, there's a there's almost the chance of a backlash against the liberty movement in a situation like this, that it, it becomes sort of a target. So um, that is a great question. What, 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 how is the liberty movement adjusting to stop this tyranny and these power grabs? And, uh, you know, as, as Sam was saying, you know, what are, what are the chances that we'll get back to the freedom that we had before? Pr pr pretty slim, really. Very, very concerning. Yeah. I, I do think, and, and I'm banking on this, and, and we're, we're free speech absolutists at Free the People, but I think there's a counter-counter-revolution when people get fed up with the idea that they can't speak their minds. It's a very un-American un attitude that anyone would be told that they can't speak. So um, uh, uh, you and I uh, talk about Ayn Rand objectivism a lot. I think it's more relevant than ever. So I, when... You know, I think it was Bertrand Russell said that experts can be wrong, you know, even experts can be wrong. But these days we're finding that the experts can't even agree on what to do, uh, both personally and professionally. I have, I continually re and re review objectivist philosophy, philosophy of epistemology, and our ability to think for ourselves, as Jeffrey was saying, kind of look at the data, make a rational decision. Don't start listening to CNN and Fox News as if that's medical advice. There's a lot of stuff to sort through and people are on data overwhelmed. But Ayn Rand, the objectivist philosophy, the reason, the rational thinking, uh, in times of trouble and strife, the ability to keep your cool and think rationally is critically important. It is, it is what has served us so well um, in our business world and is serving us even better than ever today when we're trying to sort through what's the real science behind some of this stuff. Yeah, we 100% we, we agree on this. I, I think that principles and philosophy and your worldview matter most in the midst of a crisis when things are radically uncertain, when the data is not at all clear. Um, there are guiding principles that can sort of uh, weed you through all that and, and get to at least a path forward because we live in a radically uncertain world and part of the process of being human is, is getting forward. Good to see you, Matt. Uh, uh, I, heard you, I heard you back from California recently. I was uh, making my beer. annual pilgrimage. Some people go to Mecca. I go to uh, Russian River Brewing yes. for the release of Pliny the Younger. And it was, it was worth the trip. Well, good. Irrational, perhaps, some people would say, but uh, um, I just have to note that uh, I'm working right now, and I'm in a brewery with one of my favorite brewers, uh, drinking beer. And I feel like every life decision I've made since I was a child got me to this point. Ah. So I, I feel like I've made some good decisions, and the struggle was worth it. I'm very glad to hear that. Thank you. And cheers to that. Cheers. Cheers to you, Matt. So we haven't talked for a while, and, and I, I wanted to check in. Uh, you're the CEO of Flying Dog Brewing. 
Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Jim Caruso. I am the CEO, uh, co-owner of Flying Dog Brewery. Uh, I've been doing this since 1994, uh, going on 27 years. Back before craft beer was cool. Just at the start, actually. So uh, prior to the brewery, we had a brew pub in Aspen, Colorado. And I think at that time, total breweries, brew pubs, everything, less than 300 in the U.S. Uh, There'll be close to 8,000 in a few months. So tremendous growth. Uh, Flying Dog has always been in the top 50, uh, relevant. This is a very concentrated industry. I don't think people realize that... 30 breweries account for 90% of the sales. The other 7,900 breweries account for 10 to 15%. So very, very concentrated industry. And the rest are very local startup entrepreneurs, um, usually young people that, that just have a passion for, for making cool beer. Yeah, a lot of that. And it's, it's great to see, like back in the 1800s, where you have your local brewery that pretty much serves that area, that neighborhood. So a lot of the... New breweries are tap rooms. You're drinking the brew, the beer on premise. Uh, you know, here we sell 99.8% of our beer outside of here. Others are just the opposite model, and it's terrific. It's a great experience. So you guys started in Aspen, and then you expanded to Denver, Colorado. What year was that? 1994. Uh, we went from a brew pub to a manufacturing facility, bottling and distributing beer. I was a I was a strange young man. I actually went to the Aspen Brewery, and, and I remember Doggy Style Pale Ale. And uh, the was there a porter at the time? There was, there was. Might and, have been, might have been Rin Tin Tin Porter. Yeah. Um, the Doggy Style Pale Ale. Uh, our the bartender there named it Doggy Style. It, it's it's a fun name, of course, Flying Dog Doggy Style. But it was meant to be our version of a pale ale. And to this day, it's still confusing to people when they say, "Well, what is Doggy Style?" It's not really a style. It's yeah. It's just a fun name. Yeah. And that's part of that's part of your tradition going back from day one. You do these cool names, and you have all of these iconic labels made by one of the one of the coolest artists who's still alive. Talk, talk about that relationship sure. and Hunter S. Thompson uh, and all that. Well, you know, creative expression. So um, I, I think from time to time you could say, well, somebody thought one of these names was offensive. That is never ever our intention to do the frat boys stuff to try to shock people we just like to have fun uh you know if you wanted to shorten up our mission statement it's to be the best part of your day and when you say that to people here everybody knows when you're not being the best part of somebody's day but the like most craft brewers we believe that beer was liquid art Uh, but we were the first to want to actually use art on a bottle and what i mean by that is We didn't just take a label and say to somebody, find something to fit into this postage stamp box. We took real art, and it is very difficult to actually put real art on a label. We were very fortunate because uh, Ralph Steadman, who I believe is one of the true artists in the world, perhaps the true artist, the principles he stands for, how he's always had the integrity to stay true to his art. Uh, We knew him through Hunter S. Thompson, who was a longtime resident of Woody Creek, Uh, knew Ralph even before we had a brewery and we were very very fortunate that Ralph uh, agreed to do original art for our beer labels going back to 1995 and is currently doing uh, art for our new beers coming out so it is that combination of uh, liquid art in the bottle and true art on the label I think that distinguishes us and it's it's very true to our 
belief in <coughs> creative expression, uh, not just our thoughts and ideas, but how we market our beers, the statements that we make to people. It's gotten us in a little bit of trouble with some states. Uh, yeah, we'll get into worked that. Out, we're like, going through that. Not all government bureaucrats have a sense of humor, apparently. Not all? Not all. So how many beers on any given week, how many beers, different styles of beer do you have in the marketplace? Uh, 30. Uh, I think three weeks ago, we introduced five new beers. We'll do 80 different beer styles this year. About 30, 35 are year-round seasonals, limited releases, and then a lot of experimentation. And the 30-so are things that end up in a bottle and distributed um, beyond this brewery. Yes, so uh, yeah. we, we sell beer two ways, in a bottle or in kegs. But more and more, even the limited releases we're putting in bottle, a uh, very popular package, uh, a lot of interesting dynamics in the market with people shifting their consumption from going to a bar to drinking at home. So you'll see it, over the last few years, we've put more and more of our beer into bottles, not just on draft. And that's what I like. What do you think about the, the sort of radical shift in, in beer culture, which you guys were certainly, you know, the original OGs of, of saying we want to drink something a little bit different. Um, you know, these, these corporate lagers, um, they, they kind of suck after a while. But today there's like a culture, it's, it's almost like an arms race where um, if you're a beer geek like I am, you have to try every new thing and you don't have a go-to beer anymore. You, you just want to keep experimenting and keep trying. And is that, is that difficult for a, a national brewer like yourself to, to keep up with the market? Or do you, do you feed on that? Well, the market's difficult, period. <laughs> and that's, that's the inspiration. So, yeah, what, what has happened is um, there's overwhelm. With 8,000 breweries, um, several thousand distributing beers, even I am a little bit overwhelmed on the shelf. And uh, good news, bad news. Uh, you know, the good, good news is consumers have a lot of choice, pro-consumer, pro-consumer choice. And uh, there comes a point in every industry where you go back to your trusted brand. So it kind of works in your favor over time where people are going, okay, that was great. Now I just want to know that there is a great brewery out there. My hard-earned 10 12 $14 for a six-pack will be worth it. Uh, so, yeah, that, that works in our favor. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, beer right now is not so much uh, the trend that it was a few years ago. Uh, people are not drinking less, so you can dispel that rumor. Alcohol consumption is us is up. Even young people are drinking. They're just drinking a lot of different stuff. Seltzers and hard cider and hard coffee, which we're doing. Uh, brown spirits are back in. Beer, of course, is still very high on the list. Um, so, yeah, there's, it's, it's interesting. I'm not a fan of the seltzers, but the brown spirits, I'm all in. <laughs> all in, yes. All in. Uh, we are soon, uh, I'm soon we'll be back in that business. You know, seltzer, it's fine. Uh, it's, I think it's driven partly by the low calories, low carbs. We're not doing a seltzer because we don't feel it's artisanal enough. Uh, we can do a lot with coffee, which we're experimenting with. We have a great partnership with Vigilante Coffee. That's his name. You, you were born to be an entrepreneur if your name is Vigilante, uh, hard cider kombucha. But seltzer, it's, it's basically like vodka. You know, it's, it's great to have the flavors. It's meant to be mass market, and we're not moving in that direction. Yeah, it's like a vodka soda. Yeah, it is. That's uh, fine. So I've it's heard. I honestly have never tried one, so maybe I'm being a uh, hypocrite. I think I've tried them all, and they're yeah. they're very good. Uh, it's not my beverage of adult beverage of choice, but they're fine. But there is sort of a um, there's a there's a life cycle, and I, I could use myself as an example because I went through this process of 
Um, I'm not a person that's um, inclined towards moderation in my philosophy, in my life choices, and certainly not in my beer. So I went on this this sort of uh, quest to find the most insanely hopped <laughs> high alcohol beer. Right. And, and I actually had a quadruple IPA that was like 18% alcohol or something. And and it was good, but maybe not a sessionable beer to drink while doing a podcast with Jim Caruso. It, it might not work out that well. We, can so, have a, we should try podcasts like well, that. Well, we're, we're going to try it with some of these beers. But, you know, my, my current sense is to go back to a well-made lager, which, which is it's not easy to make a good lager. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, it's, it's harder work than an ale, as, as you could probably tell me. And, um, but do, do you see sort of a, a counter-revolution against those, some of those monsters that, that were interesting experiments, mm-hmm. but ultimately maybe not that drinkable? Sure. Um, yeah, we can spend a minute or two on the beer industry. You, you made the comment about uh, what I call macro beers, you know, the, the guys doing, you know, $50 billion worth of sales. And I, they, they could do different beers. I believe this is just another argument for the free market. They had no competition. Craft yeah. beer was illegal. So it just uh, devolved into a common denominator product. I remember when it was the brand X beer. So I'm faulting the government regulation, not so much the talent of the brewers for ending up with not very flavorful beers. Yes, uh, so starting out in this industry, we didn't do pilsners and lagers uh, for two reasons. Uh, One is uh, they show the defects a lot more, and there was no training. I mean, we have to brewing school and other stuff, but a lot of experimentation. And second, uh, pretty capital-intensive industry, and those took longer to make. So it was easier to do ales, which were more forgiving, uh, if they weren't crisp and exactly clear, and it didn't take up the real estate so much. But the trend has gone around, and now uh, brewers are, craft brewers are making excellent pilsners, lagers, lighter beers. There is more interest in lower alcohol uh, craft beers. That wasn't the case 20 years ago. We've been doing some of those. At the same time, you hear these broad generalizations that you know people are drinking less and don't want high alcohol beer. Our fastest growing beer is 12% alcohol. We ship by the truckload and we're doing an 18% alcohol version of it this year. It's called Double Dog. We're doing a Triple Dog. Triple so, Dog. Triple okay. Dog at 18%. Nice. Uh, there are some limits to how much alcohol you can get into a beer with beer yeast, but we can definitely make a true beer at 18, 18 plus percent. Is that alcohol. about the top of, of what's uh, I think you can go a little bit workable. higher. Uh, the, the short answer is as yeast produces alcohol, the alcohol kills off the beer yeast. So at some point you just max out. You can keep adding yeast. You can use a little bit of champagne yeast that has a higher tolerance. See, once I get done with my 4% lager craze, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to go to triple dog. That's right. And I don't see why you wouldn't do that. Uh, well, that's, that, is our, that is our belief, actually. That's awesome. Well, let's let's talk about these two beers because you you guys do the entire spectrum. I mean, I think you uh, you were even talking about a non-alcoholic beer that you made, but this is uh, Lucky Sob. Ah, yes. What's going on in here? Lucky Sob is a very limited release, late February until March 18th. It is a beer we put out for St. Patrick's Day um, six years ago. Uh, one of my wonderful employees here in purchasing wanted to take the afternoon off. Uh, it was a beautiful sunny day, so I asked her if she'd go pick some four-leaf clovers. And she knew the trick. She picked a bag in like 10 minutes. Uh, 
uh, gave him the four-leaf clovers, took the day off. I put them in the freezer. We used them to brew Lucky SOB with genuine four-leaf clovers. Found out at the 11th hour that four-leaf clovers were not listed as generally fit for human consumption. You can, of course, eat them, but it wasn't on the list. So we had to scramble a bit, worked with the government in a very positive way. They approved it. Um, we do a secret incantation above the brew kettle when we uh, add the four-leaf clovers. And uh, as you know, uh, Blaise Pascal, the famous philosopher mathematician, once said about God, uh, well, if you don't believe and there is a God, you might be in a world of hurt. But if you believe and there isn't, no big deal. I say, I don't know that four-leaf clovers will bring you good luck, but what if they do? How can you afford not to enjoy a lucky SOB during this St. Patty's Day? So an extra season? incentive to, to put, this, extra incentive. put this guy down. You never know. Yeah. And it is, and it's extremely drinkable and beautiful, and I can taste just a little bit of four-leaf clover in ah, there. Yes, yes. <laughs> On the nose. On the nose, yes. And then the other extreme, and I think this is the probably the highest alcohol beer you have right now, or pretty close to it. Um, this is uh, notorious yeah. barrel-aged gonzo with cherries, yes. and you got a lot of stuff going on in this beer. A lot of stuff. And it's sort of speaking to my extreme side of my palate. We brewed uh, the Gonzo Porter uh, in 2005. Uh, it was for Hunter S. Thompson's memorial. Uh, he took his own life February of 2005. Uh, it was part of uh, an effort to raise some proceeds and do something for that. It turned out to be an excellent beer, so we've been brewing it ever since. Uh, each year after the Super Bowl, we do a special version of it, bottle conditioned or with special flavors in the large 750 bottles. And this is this year's version. Uh, barrel aged, uh, cherries. Is this uh, the first time you've, you've added cherries to the mix? I believe it is. Yeah. I believe it is. It's, it's wonderful. It's not the first time we've used cherries. I believe it's the first time we use cherries in the yeah. uh, Gonzo. And there's, uh, and it's going to be a long night for me because I see a rum barrel-aged gonzo yes. and a whiskey barrel-aged gonzo. And I, I love the barrel-aging process because I think it, it adds a complexity that that um, you don't expect from from regular beer. I agree. I, and by the way, it, we have a line at the door. Uh, it sells out, but I managed to secure a bottle of each for you to take nice. back with you. So it could be a long night even when you go home. Uh, yeah, so the, the barrel aging, sure, it's, uh, it's wonderful, it's fun. We used everything. We used tequila barrels, rum barrels, wine barrels, whiskey barrels. Um, we, like many craft brewers, pride ourselves on balance. It's easy to make alcohol. If you don't know how, I could give you the five-minute lesson. It's easy to put a ton of hops into a beer. It's easy to get so much alcohol, you get the alcohol burn. Or put a beer in a keg, and it just tastes like whiskey. So we want everything to be in balance, and that's the real art. That's why... We have to taste this every week yeah. uh, until it's, we know it's right. It's a responsibility. It's a big responsibility. By the way, I love the new, uh, the new slogan, disobedient beer. And it, I feel like that fits the flying dog persona. And even I, I think the, the craft beer industry, I've, I've prattled on for several years about um, craft beer as a metaphor for freedom and entrepreneurship and, and, and um, creative disruption and and you guys sort of personify that and, and i want to i want to pivot to sort of an, a more more ideas because we have some some culprits sitting here and you talked about beer labels as art as expression 
and you've gotten in trouble for that. And I, I think your your friends going back to Hunter S. Thompson helped get you in some trouble. Yes. Um, yes. T- tell the story about good beer, no shit. Sure. Uh, so um, I mentioned creative expression. Uh, I believe that creative expression is directly tied to freedom of expression. Creative expression is directly tied to economic freedom. If you can't deliver your message to the market, then you can't be an entrepreneur. And I think part of that is what you name your product, what kind of product you make, assuming it's legal, all that sort of stuff. So uh, you probably know the federal government and the state governments have to approve beer labels. These laws go back to prohibition. They're changing over time with craft breweries. So we, uh, our first Ralph Steadman beer was Road Dog. all of our labels have a story. We've never used a marketing company. These black and white stripes are prison bars uh, from one of uh, our original uh, co-workers <laughs> who spent some time. Road Dog it has various meanings. It could be your cellmate. Uh, Hunter wrote an essay. Hunter S. Thompson wrote an essay for the release of this where he describes Road Dogs as, as these sons of aristocrats who would ride down the street at night and bash in people's faces and put old ladies in barrels and roll them down the cobblestones. Uh, Fun stuff. And he wrote uh, for us a nice little toast here that there is an ancient Celtic axiom that says good people drink good beer, etc. So Ralph Steadman is painting... And and bad people drink bad beer. Yeah. Uh, There is an ancient Celtic axiom that says good people drink good beer. Which is I, true. I, I believe this to be true. I believe this to be true. Think about it, Hunter says. So Ralph is painting this in his studio in Kent, southeast of London. The BBC, local BBC, there's they're doing a documentary. He's painting up this road dog character, talking about uh, his friend Hunter S. Thompson, longtime relationship, and these these boys in Colorado that are going to do a brewery and they're going to make some good beer. Good people drink good beer. They're going to make good beer, no shit. And partly just to poke the BBC a bit, yeah. he writes, good beer, no shit on here. You can barely see it. And we, uh, it's 1995, we released the beer. This is one of the originals. I probably, I could have put this label on here. We released this in Denver, Colorado. And a uh, huge hit. Ralph Steadman Art, Hunter S. Thompson. It was a Scottish ale, brilliant beer. This is 1995. And uh, here's an example Uh one of the many reasons to be concerned about regulation. One of our competitors used regulations, the Colorado Liquor Control Commission, whatever it's called, as a way to beat up the competition. Uh, that shit is obscenity, is what they said. And so they called us and said, take the beer off the shelf, or uh, it's obscenity. I said, it's, it's not obscenity. I said, or they said, uh, they said, shit's obscenity. I said, you're shitting me, right? <laughs> it's not obscenity. And it basically came down to uh, enough uh, of a challenge. They said, you can leave it on the shelf, we'll suspend your license, or you can take it off the shelf. So that's a quarter million dollars worth of beer. If we were your basic startup, we were all a little bit more further along in our careers, we could, uh, we took it off the shelf, uh, relabeled everything, soaked the labels off, relabeled it, wrote good beer, no censorship, and sued Colorado. Um, and not for marketing purposes, not for anything other than I've been defending civil liberties since 1977, and it's just wrong. And we just crossed paths. We didn't seek a fight. Uh, the ACLU, back when they were vigorously defending free speech, uh, Mark Silverstein, uh, the Colorado office, took our case. Uh, five years later, I think it was, we won, of course, um, announced it at the very famous uh, independent bookstore, the Tattered Cover. CNN, Newsweek were there, got a nice little write-up. 
And one of the reporters asked, why, I was asking Mark Silverstein, in this day and age when people might be on death row, unjustly convicted, and other ways to use resources, why would the ACLU defend something as sophomoric, something as trivial as a beer label? And Mark's answer was unequivocal, uh, that constitutional freedoms, the most important of which you could argue is the freedom of speech, are not lost overnight. They're chipped away at bit by bit. Where there's smoke under the door, the fire is not far behind. And that's, that's it. So, yes, uh, we defended, we invested resources, defended a beer label, because it's always about the stuff at the periphery. If you're waiting until you're defending the Alamo, it's too late. So that's why these battles seem to be about beer labels and so forth, because that's where the challenges are. You have appointed regulators who want to force their opinion on others. And, and it wasn't just, I mean, it was, it was a defense of free speech, but the whole thing was triggered by a competitor that wanted to use the regulatory process to, to crowd out competition. Well, sure. So, so here, here you have uh, this brewery that's getting all this press, uh, and if you have the ability to use a regular to beat up on your competitor, you do. It happens all the time. Yeah. It's happening, happening today. It's what lobbyists uh, work on in many ways. Sounds like something out of Atlas Shrugged. Sounds like something out of Atlas Shrugged. Yes, socialism versus free markets. Uh, a similar situation with Raging Bitch. This was in Michigan. Um, uh, it's complex how states approve labels. Didn't know it was rejected, honestly. It's get this weird paperwork back. Uh, Ship some beer out there. I was driving to D.C. on a beautiful, beautiful sp uh, spring day, summer day like this, and got a call from here saying, the Michigan State Police just called, and if you don't remove every bottle of Raging Bitch from the shelves by tomorrow, they're going to confiscate it, and there are going to be serious charges pressed against you. I'm like, okay, this is surely a mistake in, two, in 2010. Uh, but no, they, we, uh, liquor, Michigan Liquor Control Commission had people that didn't like the word bitch. In fact, they banned anything with the word bitch in it in the state, including a beer by our friends Dogfish Head Bitches Brew and uh, uh, commemorating the uh, yeah. classic Miles Davis album. Uh, we sued. Uh, that ended up in the uh, circuit court. We won six years later. Um uh, Clearly won and uh, were awarded damages. I used those damages to found the First Amendment Society. Uh, again, we don't do this for marketing. One beer in one state does not make or break us. It's simply wrong, and you have to fight. Th we have to fight those battles. Uh, First Amendment's on the wall here. You don't see that at too many breweries. Uh, we have a lot of guest speakers. Would love to have you as a speaker sometime talking about the real-world implications about, yes, Colorado did wrong, Michigan's bad— they're in the they're in the frequent flyer club for bad behavior with bitch, but it's not easy to sue a state. It's expensive. You are suing your regulator, which could have you know repercussions. But um, if you believe in freedom, freedom of expression, creative expression, uh, you can't. You're constitutionally incapable of not suing them. So I go to a lot of these these upstart nano breweries, and and there's there's a lot of. Uh, kids at these places are a lot cooler than I am. I suspect that there's, there's a lot of uh, Bernie bros there. And, and I, I wonder if, if dealing with uh, the labeling of beers, and I can't imagine, like if you're, if you're a startup, dealing with the regulatory process has to be an incredibly onerous thing. And, and part of, part of the, uh, the legacy of Flying Dog is all these cool labels on all of these cans of beer now, like just mm -hmm. infinite 
iterations of this stuff. And do they do they learn anything about about cronyism and and why free speech is so important and how government can can step on that, or do they just hit the wall and say, I don't I don't even understand what's happening. The startup breweries or well, uh, th- this is a carryover from prohibition. So there was a misinterpretation when states were given the legal right to monitor the sales, transportation, manufacture, distribution of alcohol. Many states view that as we can do anything we want. Co- the Constitution doesn't apply. Freedom of speech doesn't apply. Colorado was a state ruling. Raging Bitch was a federal ruling, which basically put every liquor commission on notice that freedom of speech applies to beer, whiskey, and wine. So we that was a big deal from that standpoint. But no, startup breweries, uh, very complex industry, and they don't realize, it takes us 11 months to get a beer approved. By the time we have the recipe, submit the label for approval, the list of ingredients, get the feedback, then have to get it approved in all the states. It's a tortuous process. Uh, I haven't actually calculated our cost of compliance here, but it's significant six figures just to comply with all the states, export, manufacturing, distribution that we're in, et cetera. Do the, do the local distributors, at uh, local breweries that just distribute out of their, their front door, do they deal with a, a lower bar? Um, because you're selling across state lines. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a huge difference if you're only selling in intrastate. Yeah. Uh, once you cross state lines, you're into federal territory. But your First Amendment fight has sort of cleared the decks and, and allowed other brewers to innovate. You realize that, that that's not typical corporate behavior because uh, too many corporations are, are focused on either gaming the system mm-hmm. to screw their competitors or at least not fighting uh, onerous regulations that they think would hurt their competitors more, and you're doing it differently. Interesting question. Uh, I'm a small L libertarian, uh, you know, uh, really, really strong on civil liberties, free markets, all the sorts of things you talk about much more uh, in, in a much better way than I do. But you, somebody asked me once, so do you run a libertarian business? It's like, uh, I'll put on my libertarian shirt today and I'll be a libertarian or I'll, I'll be here. Uh, I would say that if, if you're a libertarian, um, it, would, it would never, my um, aggressiveness in fighting impingement on free speech would never have come up if I didn't have a beer label rejected. I don't like go out there and go, I'm for free speech and yada, yada, yada. But you can't reject a beer label, ours. Uh, and they did it all the time. Michigan rejected bitch wine and everything else. Bastard was fine. Uh, Then they rejected Flying Dog. First thing they said to me when I went up there, this is pretty interesting, I appealed it. They wouldn't tell me on the phone. I had to go there. Then I had to appeal it. It was the same people who rejected it. And I said, not an attorney, but I thought an appeal was somebody reviewing your decision. They said, well, you can consider this a reconsideration, but I assure you this is not about free speech. I'm like, okay, great. What's it about? Is it the art? Is it, what is it? You know, and uh, so no, you can't, you can't just if you really want to preserve constitutional freedoms, um, you don't go out there yelling and shouting at people, but you don't let somebody steamroll over your constitutional rights. So we spent 12 years in court and a lot of time and a lot of effort, and it was worth it. And we could have lost. Yeah. But you started off just wanting to bring beautiful products to market. Well, I, uh, yeah. I, I, we started off by saying... Um, uh, there, are a lot, there are a lot of great breweries out there. You can have, you know, patriots and founding fathers and beautiful mountains, all kinds of great stuff. Ours was 
really interesting art by one of the true geniuses and fun names. Um, you know, raging, raging bitch. We didn't just sit there and go, what can we do to come up with a name that might be shocking? Bitch is a dog. The etymology of bitch goes back hundreds of years. Uh, the, and it's harmless. It's a dog. In the Midwest, you, you talk about bitch. You know, uh, bastard has a pretty challenging etymology. We don't have a beer called bastard, but somehow that's okay. We use El Diablo yeast. It's a raging yeast. It ferments 30% faster than you'd expect it to. Raging yeast, bitch is a dog. Well, that would be fun. Certainly it has another connotation. Um, I got all the women together at Flying Dog, and we have a lot of cool people here. And uh, you got to know who to check with. So we were sitting in the conference room. You've been in our conference room. And I said, I got a couple of different names. It's our 20th, an- our 20th anniversary. Um, and I you know, said, raging bitch. And they all go, love it. And one, one of them, she still works for us. She said to me, based on everything you ever said to us and told us, if you don't use that name, I will forever be personally disappointed in you I'm like done I mean like I and so what I found was that uh, it has different meanings Uh, it can you take a term like the slants our friends at the slants who adopted that name for their band they're the only only Asian American band in the world and they wanted to use that as an empowering word bitch is the same way for a lot of people Uh, but, but on the free market if nobody bought raging bitch we wouldn't be selling it it was our number one beer since we released it in December of 2009, it's still our number one beer. So, if it, if so it was our number 80 beer, it wouldn't be on the market. Yeah. So ultimately, the fight actually made business sense, even though it was about principle first. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. before you do a beer, you don't know how it's going to go. I've had what I thought were some great names, great beers, and you know the, the billions of decisions out there determine if you're going to do it. Now, there are a lot of beer names I think are terrible. Um, so what? P- if people buy them, that's... That's their business. That's up to them. You use the word small L libertarian. And I know this story, but I'm going to ask you anyway, because I I think it's a really cool story. And it's not unlike my sort of uh, gateway to libertarian ideas. How on earth did you become a libertarian? (laughs) Well, I I discovered I was a libertarian. Uh, I I knew I wasn't exactly a conservative uh, for a variety of reasons, Republican, that sort of thing. But my path was through objectivism, uh, Ayn Rand, um, and I was kind of laid up with a sports injury for a weekend. I saw a copy of Atlas Shrugged on the shelf. might have been like the 40th anniversary or something. I don't remember exactly. And I was 50 pages into it, and I couldn't put it down. So we didn't have espresso in those days. Through this caffeine-induced weekend, I read Atlas Shrugged cover to cover, and I just wanted to be in that world. I knew it was an idealistic world. It's fiction. But it was like, that's, that's the world I want to be in. And that kind of leads you to the libertarian philosophy. It doesn't really go the other way around. Liber- libertarians aren't necessarily objectivists. And Ayn Rand uh, thought maybe libertarians were too libertine back in the day. But it was that, that freedom, free markets, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom as an individual. Um, and that's, that's, that's what I am. The Libertarian Party, no, I don't belong to any political party. I used to be nonpartisan. Now I'm anti-partisan. I think they are both terrible on fiscal policies and civil liberties and just across the spectrum. Uh, Even the word partisan, is, it's, it's like a tribal thing. Like, oh, um, yeah. I'm right, you're wrong. That's not a conversation. It's not thinking. It's not even um, accepting the possibility that you may not understand everything. And and I, I feel like we're in that, that tribal world today. But... The, I've been, I 
the, the reason I, I wanted to bring it up is I wanted to, to dig into what I would say almost rehabilitating an understanding of Ayn Rand's moral philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, Terry and I are, are going to the Republic of Georgia, oh, or fantastic. what used to be the Republic of Georgia, next week to, to give talks about, about Ayn Rand's philosophy and apply it to everyday life instead of sort of high-minded objectivism. Just mm-hmm. and, and she was really into what she called a sense of life. And, and the, her, her heroes, as, as at their best, were, they were smart people, but they were humble enough to, to appreciate that doing anything useful was a struggle. And they struggle, and they fail, and they succeed, and they innovate, and, and from that process comes their own sense of their, their worth as a human mm-hmm. being. And to me, that could be potentially a, a radically uplifting to, thing for young people who are trying to figure out who they are, where they fit in. You know, they're looking at the partisan divide, and they're like, mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't even want to be part of this argument because it's dumb. And too, too, many, too many people on the left would, would say, oh, Iran, she just cared about herself. And she said, anything goes. Um, objectivism is just um, win at any cost and, and destroy your enemy. And I don't think it's that at all. Well, there's, there's a lot packed into that uh, terrific statement. Uh, intrigued by your work in Republic of Georgia as well. First of all, la- la- these terms are so divisive right now that I try to stay away from them. Um, I saw a dis- very disturbing uh, survey that said the majority of young people do not want to get into a conversation with people who disagree with them. Wow. Uh, that's, that's not good for democracy. Uh, I blame social media. I blame media in general for that, you know, kind of that divisiveness. But here's what it comes down to, that um, you don't have to use words like objectivism, the virtue of selfishness. Probably could have found a better title for that book, but still. Uh, yeah, it doesn't mean what she meant. It doesn't mean what she meant. Uh, and if you if you just read her brilliant fiction, uh, The Fountainhead, which is about the individual versus the collective, or Atlas Shrugged, which is about capitalism versus socialism, um, and take away the principles. I look at it this way. You could never have read Ayn Rand, know who she is, care about objectivism, if you just talk about what she viewed as the most important virtues and live your life by those, you will be a happy, successful individual. And I think that's what people are looking for. And when you see the, um, I don't know if you read much with Stoicism, the Stoic philosophy on, on the shortness of life, life is plenty long to do what you want to do and be happy. And Ayn Rand, if you wanted to, you know, the very, very, very short version, the purpose of life is happiness to allow individual humans to thrive and be productive and create stuff like iPhones and Disney movies and all that great stuff. And um, I think that's what people are searching, searching for, that, that sense of, well, how, what is the meaning of life? Well, the meaning of life is what you give it. And Ayn Rand suggests a way to give meaning to life that will help you feel good about yourself. Uh, and as you get older, as opposed to you go, well, the meaning of life is to do drugs and wake up every morning with somebody in the gutter with somebody pissing on me. Okay, how's that working for you? Not very well. And I think when you look at Ayn Rand's philosophy, uh, whether it's the virtues or reason, purpose, self-esteem, that will guide you yeah. to whatever it is, being the greatest parent or an entrepreneur. I think, the, I think capitalism is 
grossly misunderstood. Um, and, you know, words like that are immediately divisive. Capitalism is imperfect. It's unjust in many ways. There's crony capitalism. There are people that use the three L's all the time, lobbyists, lawyers, and loopholes. Uh, I despise them. Um, and I believe Ayn Rand did too. I think she, she was constantly against the crony capitalism. That's not capitalism, though. Yeah. It's uh, like I, w- I would draw a sort of a bright separation, like, you know, the collusion between business guys and the monopoly power of the state is in many ways the opposite of capitalism. It's a corruption of capitalism. Um, but I think that word is is so it has so much baggage now, like mm-hmm. um, and in the minds of young people, I think capitalism and cronyism are the same thing mm-hmm. because they came of age when the first thing that they watched happen was the the bailout of Wall Street mm-hmm. by insiders in washington d c so they're they're not exactly wrong because they see that that that's how the game works mm-hmm. that's uh absolutely <clears throat> and uh well let's look at it two ways uh there are bad CEOs. There are bad doctors, bad lawyers, bad electricians. There, there are. Uh, you know, the, the businesses get beat up on because these guys walk away with all bags of gold, and that is wrong. Uh, but that's the way it's set up. But you'll find young people make a very clear distinction between CEOs, and I, I was a president of a public publicly traded company, very different environment, you know, scam the system, find the loopholes, find a way to work the incentives so you get your bonus. Uh, and entrepreneurs and young people, vast majority uh, admire entrepreneurs, people who start businesses. They want to be entrepreneurs. And I think that's a lot more consistent with Ayn Rand. And when you think about business, it's not the CEO who walked away with I don't know, $300 million after the company went bankrupt and they're not getting it back. Uh, that is that is Ayn Rand opposes it. I oppose it. Any rational person I know opposes it. You don't have to be a libertarian. Yeah, her heroes are 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 very much uh, startup types, yeah. and and they they tend to to put in long hours based based on a principle broader than can I can I get a quick return on my buck, mm-hmm. and that I think that's that's one of the the caricatures that we fight against is uh, entrepreneurship isn't about like coming up with a a better widget that that improves your marginal rate of return two percent which might make you a billionaire entrepreneurship is is very much that that sort of crazy disruptive thing where i'm gonna make a barrel aged imperial porter with cherries and i don't know what exactly what's going to happen but i love it and i i hope my customers love it too uh, entrepreneurship is creative expression. <clears throat> when Steve Jobs had the notion of a thousand songs in your pocket, it's brilliant, and he made it happen. Uh, so, yes, uh, from an entrepreneur's standpoint, it's creating stuff that didn't exist before. And several of the problems are uh, a lot of people are, are completely uh, misinformed that this is a zero-sum game, that somehow Steve Jobs took something from somebody to create the iPhone and the MacBook. He didn't. He created something that didn't exist before, uh, beers that didn't exist before. And that is very different from uh, lobbying politicians and gaming the system so you can make a few bucks. You know, this thing about money 
and objectivism, that it's somehow about rich people and so forth. The last thing in my mind is money. My, my bills are paid. It's great. The money goes back into the business. It's what excites me. And this money is the root of all evil is also just, it's, it's a misstatement. It was the love of money is the root of all evil. You know, somehow being that, uh, who's that guy in the, the Christmas Carol story, the Scroo- as Scrooge, yeah. uh, you know, counting your gold. There's no value. It's, it's a store of value. And yeah. so f- this whole thing about counting the money and so forth, it's, it's about what does that money do to create new products, to create trade, to make everybody's lives better. And this, this, this uh, pseudo-infatuation with socialism, it's, it, it'll all sort out, I, I think. I'm still an optimist, very much an optimist, once people really understand what that means. Like, if you want to live in Cuba, you have no social media and Internet. How's that strike? Yeah. Not so good. <laughs> By the way, you're, you're not allowed to have the Beatles or the Stones either. And, the Beatles or the Stones. Uh, and it, so, you know, we, we do a lot of work on, on retail telling the history of socialism to young people that have never heard the stories and and one of the things that I didn't know when I got into the project was and this pattern plays over again and again and it happened in Cuba it happened in in the Soviet Union it happened in Mao's China um, it happened in Serbia the once the socialists or the communists whatever the the nomenclature is once they take over one of the very first things they do is they go after artists and mm-hmm. poets and musicians and free expression. Mm-hmm. And you think about who those people are by definition. They don't fit into the system. They don't want to fall in line. They want to be disruptive. They're, they're very much individualists in the sense that I'm going to say what I want and believe what I want. Um, that is a very libertarian instinct, but I think, I think a lot of uh, young people that are sort of flirting with this, this uh, so-called democratic socialism, they, they can't imagine ever supporting something like that mm-hmm. because they believe in that stuff. So I'm optimistic as well because I think, I think we're arguing about, about language and terms and, and um, there's, there's this new talk about um, economic dignity and um, purpose and all of these things. And I'm like, I want to go back to an Ayn Rand novel Mm-hmm. And look at that struggle and say, you know what, the um, a politician's not going to give you dignity. A program, a, a free handout is not going to give you dignity. It's the, it's the process and the struggle of figuring out for yourself what you want to be. That's where dignity comes from. Mm-hmm. Ab- absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, there has to be a contrast. It's if, if, if you've never failed, uh, you can't appreciate success. Uh, years ago, maybe Maybe 15 years ago, I had the opportunity to talk with Mirta Munoz. Munoz, I believe is her name. She was appointed by Che and Fidel to nationalize the media. And, you know, all this press uh, Cuba gets about literate people. He just wanted people to be literate so that he could brainwash them, basically. So she was in charge of nationalizing all the media, putting the messages out there, you know, and, and it worked. And her comment to me, she, st- she still was teaching at the, I believe it's University of Havana, whatever the un- major university is. And she said, but young people these days, they are not into this communism. You know, they're into freedom of expression and free speech. They just don't understand what happened before. So it's that, it's that same cycle. And these are zombie nouns, capitalism, socialism, Maoism, fascism, Nazism. They, don't, they have no meaning. It's like, what does life look like under those systems? 
they've all been complete failures. I mean, we're a bit of a mixed economy here and that sort of stuff. But you mentioned several, add the Philippines to it and North Korea and Venezuela, et cetera, et cetera. A hundred million deaths under these these socialism, Nazism, Maoism sort of things. They're, they're failures. As you know, they're failures because this is not part of who we are as human beings. So if you want to take their property and have the government, you know, destroy the prosperity, uh, for people to agree to that, you have to throw them in the gulag. You have to throw them in jail. And eventually they'll rise up. Yeah. Free, free people do not buy into that. And they have to sort of be beaten into submission. You know, I find I find uh, uh, I don't uh, I don't have nearly the opportunity to speak to as many groups as you do, but there's freedom and liberty, and I think liberty is one of those words that isn't quite so clear. But everybody wants to be free. Nobody wants to give up their thoughts and ideas. Nobody wants somebody to tell them what beer they should buy or what car they should buy or what clothes they should wear, or what books they should read or what movies to watch in the privacy of their own home, all that sort of stuff. And I think that's what people relate to. So when you see the surveys from young people these days, they're just full of contradictions. I like socialism. And I love entrepreneurs. Uh, great. Which is it? <laughs> you know, that uh, and private property gets such a bad rap again, because, uh, you know, I think it ties into the um, <clears throat> all CEOs are bad because they put profit above people. I think that there are CEOs that do that, just like there are doctors who engage in malpractice and lawyers who should be disbarred, that sort of thing. But uh, no, no entrepreneur would put human talent and human expression and creativity and individual above profit. It, it's what makes you successful. And, you know, I think, I think once all this sorts through, look, why do people like Bernie Sanders? It's the same because it, they're sort of against that CEO type of thing. Uh, as you know, Karl Marx didn't really talk about in his uh, uh, manifesto Marxism. He just told all the bad things about capitalism. And by the way, in the 1800s, capitalism wasn't that great. What, 16-hour days? People 12 years old working in the factory? I might have been like for Karl Marx back then. And there was surely collusion between, like, if you're wealthy and you're successful, and this is true today, you, you have access to political power that the rest of us just don't have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know what is being practiced by the current administration. I'm not that into it. Say it's some version of mercantilism, okay, the, which was debunked in like the 1600s, which basically says uh, let's get monopolies in place and protect certain businesses at the expense of others. And by the way, laborers they should be kept dirt poor and have to work 16 hours a day to create wealth for the state. Nobody believes this stuff anymore. It's it's out of context. So when you have trade wars, which do affect me and that, you know, stuff like that, I think what people are for, in addition to freedom to believe and think what they want and read and watch what they want, is the free market. And, cap. you know, that's different from whatever capitalism even means today, uh, that people want to be free if they want to start a business and uh, uh, learn how to give people beautiful hairdos. They should be able to do that without massive government regulations. And if they have no customers, they want to improve their skills, would be my suggestion to them. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we need a new language to explain this process. And then as I dive back into my my younger um, education from Ayn Rand, she had this beautiful phrase called the trader principle. And she talked about trading value for value. We're all individuals and and we can choose whether or not to cooperate with each other. Um, but that trade 
when we agree to cooperate is is valuable to both parties and and that applies to international trade but mm-hmm. it, it applies to every single relationship we have in our community and and i'd love to rehabilitate the word democracy because you know that democratic socialism to me seems like a contradiction in terms but but i'm a radical democrat in the sense that i love people choosing mm-hmm. and and every marketplace you know your entire bar with all of these taps that's radical democracy because people are going to choose what they want and you really have no control over that um, until the, the, the people in, in the process speaks and mm-hmm. says, okay, that beer is great because they decided it was and I thought it was great, but you know, my opinion may not matter ultimately as much as theirs. In, in every business, uh, in a free market, you wake up every day going, uh, how can I give consumers more of what they want? things they want they don't know they want or things that they have that they want a better version of absolutely yeah. and, and this thing about uh, socialism and capitalism socialism breeds as many authoritarian totalitarian brutes as right-wing dictators. It's, it's all the same when you're trying to control the masses leave leave people alone as like you've said you know don't hurt people and don't take their stuff is that is that the motto that's, that's, it has been said. pretty much sums it up yeah and, you know, all of these isms, I'm, I'm sort of approaching, and I, I, I would call myself a libertarian, which is sort of breaking my own rule, because I think, I think these, these ideologies, these so-called isms, are, are really intended to predetermine how we cooperate with each other. And, and you know, I, I struggle to figure out what the difference is between fascism and, and communism and socialism in practice, because they all sort of looked the same to me on the outside is top down. And what we want is bottom up. And if we want to work together in common purpose, um, I'm all in for that. If we decide to, to go it alone, that's okay too, because mm-hmm. that's, that's the process of, I'll use the word democracy, that's the process of democracy. Um, as long as I can opt out, and we always want to avoid any system that says 50 plus one person gets to decide whatever happens to 49 percent some pretty atrocious horrific things happen that yeah. way um and we're we're sort of we're sort of struggling with this new radical democratic world where we have more choices we're looking for identity we're looking for for purpose but i feel like libertarians have have an answer we have a we have a place where you can be where it doesn't matter if you're um whatever your personal preferences are, whatever religion, whatever church you go to, uh, wherever you came from, none of this matters in a world where we're going to agree to cooperate or not, and everybody's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, br- brilliant points. You know, I think, uh, I think uh, the conservatives and liberals are a little more clearly defined, you know, in terms of what they stand for. Libertarian ism or libertarians are a, the whole gamut from libertarians who believe in civil liberties but bigger government to sort of the right-wing varieties so again here you're taking this zombie sort of word and saying i'm a libertarian well let me let me define it it's like saying hey is it ever justifiable to tell a lie you can't answer that yes or no you have to like follow that up with something like what you stand for but the um uh the way i view ayn rand or anything else is Look at what she says are the virtues. Rationality, using your brain to make sense of the world, integrity, independence, think for yourself, honesty, justice, pride, 
if you live by that, call it whatever you want to go, what principles do you live by? How's that working for you? And that's, I think, what people are searching for. And Ayn Rand is as divisive as, you know, as, as you know, uh, as pretty much any party out there. But what she stands for is solid. Uh, in a way, I equate it to, uh, to Hunter S. Thompson, who had some, you know, genius intellect. And people are going back to his writings now. I, wouldn't, I don't know if he ever called himself a libertarian, but uh, I remember when I was reading Proud Highway, he kept a copy of everything he ever wrote, everything. And I came across a letter he's writing to one of his best friends in Kentucky, uh, Louisville, where he grew up, saying, I just found the great, this book is, it was 1954, I guess it was, uh, by Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged. I read The Fountainhead. I can't wait to dive into this. Uh, because he was off the grid. He, yeah. he, he got fired from every job he ever had. And he said, that's their business. I would have fired me too. I, they, I don't fit. And I, I want to make a living on my own independently. And you know, if I have to you know, eke, an, eke a living out every day, so be it. So it's, it's call him what you want. You know, I don't think he ever used the term, but he lived a life true to himself. What are your principles? And how closely are you living your life consistent with those principles? Now, what it comes down to is, well, how do you choose those principles? By the outcome. And if somebody really believes that doing drugs, uh, overusing drugs every day and waking up not able to function is a good life, I would argue they're not using the rational part to say that, you know, in, in, what, in what sense are you achieving human potential by doing that? He was definitely an independent spirit and, and that word independent, like that... Yeah. that I want to say it's a human thing, but it's definitely an American thing. Like, we don't tolerate people telling us what we can't do. And that, I don't think that's a right or left thing. I think it's a, it's a thing that's sort of born in us. I, I, I think it is. I mean, it's what, what the country was founded on. And I think there's no question but that, that freedom to practice or not practice any religion, which was a big part of the founding of the country and free markets and so forth, is uh, absolutely part of what, we're, what, what it is. You know, the, the uh, um, I guess it's encouraging. It varies by age. Uh, there's a lot of discouraging stuff out there. I think it'll change. But it is still true today that the majority of Americans believe that if you work hard and, quote, play by the rules, we're disobedient, but, I mean, there are, there are rules and there are rules. Um, uh, the that, rules of civil society, not the rules of, of the alphabet. Yeah, do agencies. I drive over yeah. the speed limit? Yes. Yeah. I do. Okay. Uh, but, but I'm talking about the rules of respecting other individuals and not bullying them and all that sort of stuff. The, the, rules, the rules of a functioning society. Uh, most people, the strong majority of people still believe that if you work hard and play by the rules in America, you can get ahead. And I believe it's true, too. In spite of the government regulation, in spite of the divisiveness and all that, uh, it is part of Americans' DNA, whether, you, whether you're just a second-generation uh, person like me, my grandparents came from Russia and Italy, or whether you're one of the, part of the founding families. That is, that is America. That defines America. And Ayn Rand, I mean, that's, I mean she fled, uh, uh, I guess it was Leninism. Yeah, Lenin was she, she fled the Bolshevik uh, Revolution. Went through Nazi Germany, and yeah. uh, you know, uh, had some issues with America. But uh, yeah, she. That's how I like. I, I try to explain to my progressive friends who have sort of a visceral reaction against um, 
Rand when she talks about selfishness or ego. Um, her reaction was against watching the Bolshevik Revolution literally seize her dad's pharmacy. Yeah. And she wanted to be a writer. Like, she was an insanely smart person. She wanted to be a writer when she was uh, less, uh, like, eight years old or something. Mm -hmm. She was that smart. And she decided um, very quickly that she could not be an independent thinker in the Soviet Union. And so she sacrificed everything. She left her family. She came over here almost penniless when she was 21. So the context of that, like... Um, the rest of us can't appreciate what it would be like to grow up in the Bolshevik Revolution and see your 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 family ruined by mm -hmm. by collectivist policies. So, and yeah, she used some words, but I think that that sort of that that sort of burning spirit to to be who you want to be. That's what I get from her. I think absolutely. I think that's human. The uh, uh, <clears throat> I did not grow up during the Bolshevik Revolution, but my grandparents fled right as that was happening. Um, my, uh, my grandparents didn't really even speak English, but I remember the hushed conversations when letters would arrive from the Soviet Union. You know, somebody was sent to the gulag. I was six, seven, eight, nine years old, didn't really yeah. know what it meant, but just grew up knowing that that is an evil place. Yeah. And um, when you think about um, the the freedom here and the, the, the words are tough, selfishness, ego, I, but what she's really saying is you have the freedom to think for yourself that she's putting like an anthem with Prometheus and Gaia and, uh, and, and Howard Rourke. She's putting the I back into it. I have the right to pursue what I think will make me happy, a career in architecture. I can break the design rules. Uh, it's that, that, ind that independence to think for yourself, to determine what your values are. And what if you're wrong? Well, that's how you learn. That's how you learn in business. I, if you pay the pe if you play the penny slots, you make a handful of pennies. Yeah. Uh, I will say that over my many decades in business, I've lost millions, uh, and I could be dirt poor. But what's great about America is you always get a second chance. I was reading about Henry Ford. This was back when he was starting out, very capital intensive. You may know this. His first automobile company fails, and they go, Henry, you're you're done, man. You're, this is over. You'll never raise money again. He raises money for the second company and fails again. And then it's the Ford Motor Company you see today was the third time he raised this massive amount of capital. And it's, this, it's these false notions like never make the same mistake twice. I'm like, bullshit. You, you're not even sure what you're supposed to learn the first time around. So, no, don't make the same mistake over and over knowing what you're supposed to learn, but sometimes you have to do that several times to figure it out. So that is, this is what creates intuition and experience and allows you to be creative. And, you know, that's hard when you're very, very young, but you have to make a lot of mistakes. Swing hard, swing for the bleachers, and then figure out what you were supposed to learn from the situation. I get jazzed listening to Ayn, uh, reading Ayn Rand, listening to her. She's on YouTube now. Yeah. Uh, She's yeah, it's kind of she's, she's kind of funny. Yeah, she's got a nice sense of humor. Uh, I, I did not have the good fortune to see her before her death in 1982. Yeah, uh, but uh, would have loved to. But yeah, it's that it's that that here at Flying Dog, we're succeeding or learning. Forget this notion of failure. Like if everybody sits around until they have the perfect idea without failure, a it's been done before somewhere, and you're just copying it. You got to go out there and try new stuff, which by very definition means you're going to fail and try again and. 
you know, I sort of tell people around here, uh, you know, f- creative expression. But if this thought occurs to you, I wonder if this will put us out of business. Stop and think. Talk to me about it. Other than that, you know, <laughs> swing. Swing hard. Uh, and then everybody knows the boundaries in terms of civil liberties and what we stand for. And we just don't go down the path of um, racism, homophobia, all that sort of stuff. It's not who we are. It's not part of our DNA. So everybody has fence posts. Those are ours. Other than that, it's pretty broadly, it's an environment where you can broadly express yourself and try new beers, try new beer names. We put lots of stuff in beer, including four-leaf clovers and chocolate and cherries and mint and all of this uh, is very, Mary. yeah, this is all democratic, right? We did a, we did a brunch pack, um, this, this year sold out in days. It had a mimosa beer, a Bloody Mary beer, a, uh, toast Bob crunch pants or whatever that is, (laughs) and a coffee beer. Yeah, because somebody thought it would be a great idea to have brunch beers to go with your brunch. Yeah. Well, I'm going to leave it there because uh, I have to now try all these beers yes, uh, before we get out of here. So, so thank you so much, Jim. It's always a pleasure, Matt. Just really an honor and a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for allowing me to have this conversation. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.